Our Bible reading this morning is found in Titus chapter 1. We're picking up our studies in verse 10 and we're reading to the end of the chapter. So Titus chapter 1 and verse 10. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, says, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Amen. And we know God will always bless the reading of his own inspired word. I was reading in the paper recently about David Sheeler. Do you remember David Sheeler? David Sheeler was the MI5 secret agent who was arrested in 2002 after publishing his memoirs in Australia. And in those memoirs, he claimed that MI6 were involved in a failed attempt to assassinate the then Libyan leader, Colonel Gaddafi. He was prosecuted under the Official Secrets Act and was jailed for six months. But interestingly enough, now he claims to be the Messiah, God's son. I am the Messiah and hold the secrets of eternal life. He believes that he is a reincarnation of Jesus Christ. He claims that through a psychic that Mary Magdalene anointed him and proclaimed him to be the new Christ. This, he says, was confirmed when he realized that his name, David Sheeler, in Hebrew was an anagram of righteous king. He claims with this newfound divinity, he is able through his mind and prayers to control the weather and that he could have prevented the uh, bombings in London in 2005. Why he didn't prevent them remains a mystery. He also said that he, by channeling energy, could help his beloved uh, Musselburgh Football Club uh, reach the finals of the UEFA Cup. Sadly, that didn't come true. Interestingly enough, he is a self-confessed user of cannabis and magic mushrooms, which um, explains a lot. And he now lives as a woman, Dolores King, in Surrey. A crackpot? A religious charlatan? Most certainly. But interestingly enough, he now has a small following. Gullible people have swallowed hook, line and sinker the, his ridiculous claims. And it amazes me, and to be honest, it depresses me that right-thinking people can be swept along by that kind of thing. But they do. And the problem is as old as the New Testament itself. In Matthew 24, 24, Jesus warns that false Christs and false prophets will, ar- uh, will arise to deceive even the elect. And then he adds, if that were possible. And this is what Paul is warning us against in this second half of chapter 1 in Titus. That the churches, 
that had recently been planted on the island of Crete were being infiltrated by false teachers who were leading the believers and the churches astray. Now, I want you to notice four things uh, this morning. First of all, the problem of these false teachers. Look at verse 10. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. Insubordinate. Rebellious, says the NIV. Unruly, says the authorised version. They were spiritual and moral insurrectionists. They had infiltrated the church, but they did not submit to apostolic doctrine or apostolic authority. So they were insubordinate. They were empty talkers. Mere talkers, says the NIV. Vain talkers, says the authorised version. They have a lot to say, a lot to speak about, but they say nothing. In the words of Shakespeare, they're full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. Their talk is captivating. It's persuasive. It has great authority. They deliver it with great eloquence, but it is devoid of substance. There's no uh, life-giving, spiritual life-giving properties within it. So they are empty, talkers, insubordinate, and then deceivers. You see, it wasn't just that these false teachers had nothing to say, that what they said lacked substance. What they taught was downright dangerous. It was deceiving the people of God and it was leading the people of God astray with their powerful, passionate and persuasive teaching. They were deceiving and corrupting the people of God and the church of God. That's how Paul describes them, insubordinate, empty talkers, Deceivers, their description. Now, secondly, notice their their number. For there are many, notice that, who are insubordinate. There are many who are insubordinate. This wasn't a problem that was confined to a few. This was a pandemic of heresy on the island of Crete. Why do you think that problem was so great in Crete? Well, look at verse 12. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And Paul adds in verse 13, this testimony is true. Paul quotes a 600-year-old piece of uh, Cretan poetry in which the author describes the people of Crete as liars, evil brutes and lazy gluttons. He is speaking of generally of a national reputation and a natural Inclination. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, in the ancient world, uh, the city of Corinth was so um, identified with immorality that the verb Corinthianize mean, meant to engage in immorality. It had made its way into the Greek language, and that's, that's what it meant. So associated was that city with immorality. Well, the same was true of Crete. To Cretanize was to be dishonest. In fact, among the ancient philosophers, there was what they called the Cretan paradox. So that if a person who is dishonest um, says, I am a liar, how do you know if he's telling the truth that he is a liar? That was known as the Cretan paradox. And one of the reasons why there were so many false teachers on the island of Crete was due to the people's propensity to dishonesty. 
They were liars. You could never trust them. They were evil beasts. They were given over to uh, animal passions. They were unrestrained in their natural appetites, lazy gluttons, any scheme of making a buck, of feeding themselves without having to engage in hard work they employed. They were the Arthur Dailies or the Dell Boys of the ancient world. And so then, this natural tendency, this natural disposition to dishonesty had thrown up this plethora of false teachers on the island of Crete. So their description, their number, their motive. Why do these false teachers do what they do? Why did they do what they did on the island of Crete? Well, look at the end of verse 11. By teaching for shameful gain. I like the way the authorised version puts it, as I said last week, not because it's better understood, but because it has such a negative tone for filthy lookers' sake. It has such an awful ring about it, filthy looker. One version translates it as sordid gain. These Cretan apostates saw Christianity as a means of making money. They were setting themselves up as spiritual gurus and fighting the anxious, the unstable, and the gullible to pay money to find answers, to find peace, to find security. Beware. Beware of teachers who emphasize money, who live lavish lifestyles, who fly around the world in Lear jets. I read a biography last summer on Jim and Tammy Baker, the televangelists, that were so popular in the 1980s. And I I was amazed to read that Tammy drove a pink Rolls Royce and they had an air-conditioned kennel uh, for their dog. And both uh, Tammy and Jim were convicted of fraud. Jim went to prison, but he's now out and he's back on television as a televangelist. Beware of people whose motivation is money. The problem of the false teachers, their description, they were insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers. Their number, there were many of them because of this propensity in Crete to dishonesty. And then their motive for filthy liquor's sake, for shameful gain. Secondly, notice the danger with these false teachers. Why did Paul warn Titus so strongly against uh, this Uh, false teaching and these false teachers well look at the end of verse 11 they must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach these false teachers did their dirty work outside the confines and the discipline of the local church they taught informally within the people's homes the reason for that was simple in the larger meeting there would have perhaps been present people who uh, were more spiritually perceptive and could refute their heretical notions. But they pried on the spiritually vulnerable in the informal setting of their home. Now, the effect of this house-to-house poisonous propaganda was to upset whole families. That word upset or ruin means to overturn. It was the word that was used of Jesus when he overturned the tables in the temple. And these false teachers were overturning whole families. 
It's interesting, isn't it? Later in Titus, Paul gives instructions to wives and to men and to young women. It's almost as if he's trying to correct the influence of these false teachers. This false teaching overturned the biblical framework for the family. And that's what false teaching does. It overturns, it ruins, it upsets the biblical order, churches, families, and individuals are thrown into confusion. The cults specialize in this, don't they? Breaking up families, uh, children not speaking to parents, parents not speaking to children, brothers with sisters, and sisters with um, brothers. You see, teaching that attacks the family and undermines the family is not biblical Christianity because the family is central to the purposes of God in the Bible. So this teaching affected the lives of the individual members of the church by destroying the family. Perhaps these teachers were going in and trying to get one member of the family on board in order that that family could be divided and their resources uh, would come to the false teachers. So the danger with the false teaching, the problem with the false teachers, the danger with the false teachers. Thirdly, notice the weakness in these false teachers. What was wrong with these false teachers Where did the weakness lie? What was uh, adrift about their theology? Well, first of all, notice the origin of their teaching. Look at verse 14. Not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of men who turn away from the truth. Now, in the NIV, that's lost a little because um, it reads, or to the commands of those who reject the truth. The authorised version speaks of the commandments of men. And I think that's the way it should read. In other words, these false teachers taught that which didn't originate with God. It originated with men. They, They taught the traditions of men, the commands of men. It was not biblical. It wasn't revealed. It was invented by man. It uh, originated with man. It came by man. They based their instruction on Jewish myths and Jewish traditions, not on the Bible, not on the word of God. And that's, you'll remember, what Jesus repeatedly condemned the scribes and the Pharisees for, letting go of the commandments of God to hold on to the traditions of men. They sacrificed the teaching of scripture and replaced it with human tradition, with the traditions of man. Now the first question we must ask ourselves when any new movement arises, any new theology emerges, any new practice is promoted, is this, is it biblical? Is this what the Bible teaches? Every idea and movement must be assessed in the light of Scripture. It must be brought back to the touchstone of Scripture. Because the Scripture is the final authority in all matters of faith and practice. So you remember when Paul and Silas arrived in Berea. We're told that the Bereans were uh, more noble Because they searched the scriptures diligently to see if these things be true. And that ought to be our uh, goal 
and our aim and our practice as we listen to any teacher that we take that teaching and we assess it in the light of scripture and we ask is this biblical sola scripturia scripture alone that must be the source and the origin of all that we believe all that we preach and all that we practice scripture alone the word of god is absolute or obsolete Charles Spurgeon says the Bible, the whole Bible and nothing but the Bible is the religion of Christ's church. It is the scripture by which King Jesus rules the church. So the first question then must be, is this teaching in line with what the Bible teaches? Where does their teaching come from? Is it from scripture or is it from some other source? The origin of their teaching. Secondly, notice the essence of their teaching. And this this is crucially, crucially important. Look at verse 15. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Now this verse is often quoted and often abused. So when you see somebody doing something a little bit suspect, you might go to another Christian And they rebuke you and they say, well, you know, to the pure, all things are pure. Or you might be justifying watching to yourself, watching an inappropriate uh, television program or visiting an inappropriate website. and, And you say, well, you know, to the pure, all things are pure. That's not what this verse teaches. And that's not what Paul means. You see, these false teachers were... Jews who professed Christianity, but they insisted that all the converts would observe the traditions of the Jews, that they would have to be circumcised, that they would have to follow Jewish dietary laws, observe Jewish traditions. You notice there in verse 10, Paul calls them the circumcision party. In verse 14, he talks about they devote themselves to Jewish myths. And what they were saying was this, you know, to be pure, you had to observe the dietary laws of the Old Testament. That you weren't allowed to eat pork or duck or prawn, but you had to only eat that which was kosher. And Paul is saying, no, he says to the pure, all things are pure. So that the true Christian, the person who has been purified through the forgiveness of God bought by the blood of Christ, all things are pure. That he realizes that his salvation doesn't depend upon what he what he eats. And in fact, he is free to eat whatever he likes because Jesus has declared all things true. Now look at verse 15, because this is uh, further hinted at in this verse. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled, notice this, and unbelieving, nothing is pure. To the defiled and unbelieving. You see, how are you made pure? How do you become a Christian? By believing, not by observing, but by believing, not by observing all these laws, but by faith in Jesus Christ. 
And if you truly believe in Jesus Christ, you're made um, pure, not through uh, observation of all these dietary laws, but by believing. Do you see the issue? Do you see what was at stake? It was the doctrine of justification by faith alone. It is by believing, not by observing tradition, but by faith alone in Christ alone. And so by their teaching, they were actually teaching another gospel. They were adding to the gospel. And they were saying to to be pure, you had to observe all these rules and regulations. And Paul is coming back and he's saying, no, it's by faith alone and Christ alone. It's sola fide. That, that it's through faith in Christ that you're made right with God. Not by observation, but by believing. Martin Luther uh, once said that the doctrine of justification by faith alone is the doctrine by which a church stands or falls. That if it errs on that particular issue, it ceases to be a church. And that's why Paul is so so strong in his language with regards to these false teachers because by adding to the gospel they were taking away from the gospel and they were actually denying the gospel. Our faith is by believing in Christ to the pure, all things are pure. doesn't matter what we eat, that doesn't justify us before God. It's by believing in Christ. So the origin of their teaching was wrong. The essence of their teaching was wrong. And the result of their teaching was wrong. Look at verse 16. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. Jesus warns his disciples in Matthew 7, a passage we were looking at recently. To watch out for false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. That these false prophets come in disguise. They come incognito. They come in sheep's clothing. Now if they're in disguise. How do you recognize them? How do you know them? How do you identify them? And Jesus says by their fruit. You will recognize them. Look at their lives. And look at the effect that their teaching has on the lives of others. Now this is exactly what Paul is saying To Titus, these false teachers profess to know God, but by their works they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient and unfit uh, for any good work. There was a, a glaring inconsistency in their profession and in their living. There were no fruits of salvation, a constellation of holiness that Paul unpacks in Galatians When he says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. That was absent in their teaching. Their teaching led to unholiness. It led to that which was detestable, disobedient and unfit. Their teaching did not produce godliness in in their own lives or in the lives of others. That was the result of this heresy. That it was actually leading to a corruption in the lives of the Cretan believers and in the churches on the island of Crete. That provides us with three very important 
principles in evaluating new teaching. And we look at its origin. Is it biblical? Does it stand up to the scrutiny of Scripture? Is it adding something else to the teaching of Scripture? Its essence. What does it say about justification? What does it say about the gospel? Is it taking away from the gospel? Is it undermining the gospel? Is it replacing the gospel? And then thirdly, its result. Does it lead to godliness, holiness and Christ-likeness in the lives of the teachers themselves and in the lives of those who adhere to them? Forget what they profess. What do they produce? So the problem of the false, uh, with these false teachers, the danger with these false teachers, the weakness in these false teachers, and then the remedy uh, for these false teachers. How does Paul urge Titus to counteract the influence of these uh, false teachers among the churches in Crete? Well, uh, remember last week what we uh, looked at and the appointment of eldership. Just go up to verse Nine. We're looking at this qualification uh, for eldership. Verse 9 that we looked at last week. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who counter, uh, contradict it. For, now that's a crucial word, for there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers. Do you see that? That, that Paul's remedy for this false teaching that had got such a hold in the churches and uh, on Crete and in the lives of the Christians in Crete was the appointment of elders. That, that's his remedy. That elders who know their doctrine, that they hold firm to the trustworthy uh, word as taught, and are able to give instruction in that doctrine to rebuke those who contradict it. As these false teachers multiplied among the churches in the island of Crete, Paul says you have got to multiply the elders in these churches who are able to rebut and refute that error that they teach. There is no better way to counteract heresy than truth. So says Paul, elders need to know the truth and they uh, must be able to handle the truth to deal with the threat of these false teachers in Crete. We have such a wonderful example of that in church history. Before his conversion, Hugh Latimer, the Bishop of Worcester, was a ferocious uh, opponent of the Reformation. He would literally uh, threaten and, uh, and, and scare people away from listening to reform preaching with his threats. In his degree at Clare College in Cambridge, he gave a critical assessment of the teaching of Philip Melanchthon, who was uh, the associate of Martin Luther. But despite his forceful and fearful reputation, a young student, Thomas Bliney, asked for a private interview with Latimer. And as Thomas argued and expounded scripture, confessing his faith, Latimer was wonderfully uh, converted. Then on the morning of October the 16th, 1555, he and Nicholas Ridley 
were led out to be burnt at the stake for the doctrines, the reform doctrines that they had embraced. As they hung a bag of gunpowder round their necks and lit the fire, Hugh Latimer shouted out to his young friend, Be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall light this day a candle by God's grace in England that will never be extinguished. And he died for the faith that once he had so vigorously uh, uh, opposed. Turned round, changed by the persuasive arguments of one who was called and equipped to handle the word of God. And that's what we need today. Men of God who can handle the word of God, who know their doctrine, that can spot heresy and refute that heresy when it threatens the church. We need preachers that understand and apply scripture and can rightly divide the word of God. Doctrinal preachers, theological preachers, sound preachers. And we need elders like that. If the church is to survive and the church is to be protected, and since it's Satan's uh, uh, desired intent to toss the church about with every wind of doctrine and the cunningness and craftiness of men to, to cause confusion in the church, we need elders who can correctly handle the word of God. I was once asked to take a meeting. And... Uh, I was sitting in the congregation and uh, there were two people sitting in front of me. I was in the middle of the congregation before I was invited up to preach. And uh, this conference was in England and the two men are talking and one says to the other, do you know this man? And the other says, yeah, I've I've heard of him, but apparently he's a bit doctrinal. (laughs) He's a bit doctrinal. Well, it's a strange old world when that's uh, an insult rather than a compliment. Isn't it? We need doctrinal preachers. We need uh, informed church members. We need an eldership that can handle the, that word of God, that knows the word of God and can apply the word of God. Look at verse 11. He's speaking of these false teachers. He says, they must be silent since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. They must be silent. That's a uh, silence, that's a very strong word in Greek. It means to muzzle. It's the word that's used of Jesus when he silenced the scribes and the Pharisees. He muzzled them, not literally, but by his use of argument, by his knowledge of scripture, he was able to deflate their pompous assertions when it came to false doctrine. That's That's the kind of elders that's the kind of preachers we need today people who can silence those who come in and seek to disrupt churches with heretical teaching the problem of these false teachers their description they were rebellious they were mere talkers they were uh, deceivers their number there were many of them their motive filthy looker they were motivated by money the danger with these false teachers they were ruining whole households heresy destroys wrecks upsets the weakness in these false teachers well the origin of their teaching wasn't from the bible it was from tradition the essence of their teaching they were weak um, 
not just weak, they were off when it came to the doctrine of justification by faith. And the result of their teaching it had led to detestable disobedience. And then the remedy for this false teaching is an eldership who not only knows the truth of God, know, that knows their doctrine, but is able to use that doctrine to silence those who oppose them. Amen. And may God bless his word to all our hearts.